All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fairn and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and hanging out today is the one and only Greg Ferrand. Greg, how are you, sir? Dude, I'm very good. Like, this is the first time in North Carolina. It's just been so nasty weather-wise, like so brutal, hot and humid in the last three days. Like I woke up and it was like in the forties today and I actually had to, and it was crisp outside and blue sky. And I just thanked the infinite source of the universe for the gift of not sweating my balls off. So, sorry, that, that's coming out of the gate hot. So anyway, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful morning in North Carolina. Thanks for asking Josh. There, well, there we go. Weather, weather and patriarchy all in one one sentence well done oh good. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Well, we can always grow a pair of ovaries that's my that's my that's... favorite response <laughs> well, and let me apologize let me apologize out of the gate because we've not yet we're about to introduce our guest and i actually feel the reason that i apologize out of the gate is because th- this guest is amazing brilliant academic dr angela parker uh, she is joining us. And so I should not have been talking about the weather in that form. But I also know Disgusting, the way this podcast Greg, rolls that as, yeah, yeah, the, the way that <laughs> as we wade into these concepts that we're about to wade into, uh, that's probably the most PG moment uh, of the co- uh, of the podcast, just because the reality is uh, the intensity. Uh, this is not just theological brain candy, but this impacts uh, life and emotions and uh, justice and uh, trauma, and it, it's it's all of these pieces. So um, with that, I both apologize, and it's also a good uh, runway uh, into where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, like Greg just said, with us today is Dr. Angela Parker. Uh, Dr. Parker, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. 
and for putting up with our craziness. <laughs> we I appreciate to- being here, though. And sometimes my students often tell me about my own craziness. I've been known to drop an F-bomb with, you know, conservative <laughs> Baptist students. And, they're like, oh! and I'm like, oh, sorry, you weren't ready for that. OK, forget I said that. <laughs> I think it's all the good theological lesson. concepts like use the f word i think that i found that just through experience i don't yes. know if right. that's true or not <laughs> yeah no i, think, I taught I think a it... class on womanist feminist queer hermeneutics and oh, nice. we got to the word gender fuck and no one could say it <laughs> and i said it's right here in the text you can't say gender fuck come on now grow a pair of ovaries <laughs> there we go grow a pair of, it's in the text it's right here nice. there we go <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Parker. You rescued me and you also set the trajectory for the rest of our podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is perfect. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, well, Dr. Parker, um, just maybe for, you know, for starters, we'll go with the standard welcome to our podcast question, which is like for our listeners who maybe aren't super familiar with uh, yourself or your work, can you just kind of give us a background on uh, who you are and what kind of things you find yourself doing? Sure, of course. So I'm Dr. Angela Parker. I serve as assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology here in Atlanta, Georgia. I have been here for four years now. Prior to that, I was assistant professor of biblical studies at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. So I started my career in Seattle and then moved here to Atlanta. And so I come from a Black Baptist church background. I grew up in Black Baptist traditions, which I would consider conservative, um, socially conservative, but also still thinking about justice issues and thinking along the lines of the civil rights movement. So that was kind of my upbringing, but it was still very patriarchal and still very heteronormative. So when I felt God's calling in my life to preach and to teach, I really had a struggle with, oh, I'm a woman. I'm not supposed to be called to do these things. And so it took a a whole lot of wrestling to, to, you know, just remedy the situation of, oh my goodness, I'm still called and I'm called and I'm gifted. And I remember wrestling in prayer and in Bible reading. I was, I think I was reading first Corinthians and said something about, you know, women, if they have a question, ask their husbands at home. Well, I was smarter than my husband then. So why would I ask him anything? (laughs) And so it just did not make any sense. And I remember praying, you know, God, if I'm not supposed to have these gifts, why did you give them to me? Take them away. And Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, it is not good for you to let your gifts fall into the grave. And so I knew that I just could not question myself anymore after that. Fast forward, I go to seminary after being ordained and um, preaching and teaching in my local church context. And I often tell students, when I was teaching and preaching in church, I served as a pastor for four hot months. And I say four hot months because I knew that was not my calling. (laughs) So academia was was the preferred route for me and God opened that door. So I'm also wife, mother, uh, grandmother now and wife of a second husband who, you know, when I was reading and being, you know, God was calling me and I said, I can't ask my husband at home. I'm smarter than him. That was first husband. But now second husband is just a gift from God because he was 
He was the one who, when I said, you know, we met in North Carolina. So thinking about North Carolina roots, I was at Shaw and he was at Shaw University. So we're at an HBCU and we're both older adults returning back to school. And so I had already been married, had children. My current husband does not have children. We had to have that conversation about, you know, this, this oven is closed. There's nothing else coming out of here. And so we had that conversation and we had the conversation of, um, you know, I plan on going wherever God opens up the door for a PhD program. So I'm not tethered to North Carolina. And so he was like, yeah, that's cool. And I was just like, who are you? What kind of man are you? Most men are like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm the head of my house and you're going to follow me. And I knew that I'd already done that and that was not happening again. So it's been a blessing and a journey. Wow. Well, okay. So one of the, one of our passions at Rethinking Faith in, in kind of our approach, we talked about a bit pre-show, is, is that we we love to bring brilliant authors and academics onto the podcast. And and if you look back at who we've interviewed, you see, I mean, just heavy hitters, brilliant thinkers. But we also know that theology and rich philosophy is not disembodied conceptually, that it's born out of story. And already, already you've shared that uh, so much of your journey was, was born out of the struggle of, I I just even think about the, 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 I can't even imagine uh, as a, a white male in this context where the water is custom tailored for my temperature and still the struggles that I've experienced, let alone, I can't imagine what it's like as a, uh, a, a person of color, a woman in a, not only a cultural context, uh, but a, the theological context that is saying, no, no, no limit, limit, limit. You can't, you can't, you can't. Right. And not only that, but God says you can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word of God says you can't. And for you to have the courage and uh, sense of self, I, I, I guess, would you unpack that? I mean, because I want to get to your your, your book and I want to get mm-hmm. to the concepts, especially unpacking inerrancy and some of the, the existing presuppositions about that. But but I'm always just kind of blown away by the the courage, the faith, the strength. Uh, of of a person within a context that is so oppressive and limiting to have a sense of self that will not allow themselves to be pressed down, but to rise up through that with grace to, so, so could you unpack that a little? I mean, you, you, you gave us a quick, uh, you know, 30,000 foot of it, but kind of zoom in <laughs> a little bit more on, you know, growing up in that context. And then what, what gave you that strength? I mean, you had that moment, with that first Corinthians verse and saying, okay, I'm smarter than my husband, which is, which is a great moment of realization, but I'm sure that there was a thousand more things and then get got, you know, feeling the spirit whispering to you, don't throw your gifts into the grave. But could you unpack that a little more? Did you have a family system that gave you a deep sense of attachment and security? I mean, where, where where did that strength come from within you and and how did that evolve? That's a great question because I often talk about my family as loving and no matter what in my corner but it was always interesting especially when i was going through my divorce of is this right is this true is this what you're supposed to be doing you know you're not supposed to be getting divorced and you're not supposed to be initiating a divorce that's just horrible and i think at that time that was probably one of the lowest moments of my life because I remember family 
not my parents, but extended family, actively wishing for me to fail, actively wishing for me to fail so that I would have to return to my ex-husband because God would not prosper anything that I, I would do because I initiated a divorce. And so I remember just thinking, well, I know what God's told me, so I just have to follow through and do it. So those years were a lot of hard, lean years, and I was a single parent raising children as well. So that was a lot. But it was, for me, going to a HBCU, going to Shaw University as an adult and being meshed as an adult with all of this Black pride in an HBCU. And I remember I was in the bookstore and I come across this blue book with a Black woman on the cover. And I'm looking at this book thinking, huh, this is an interesting book. And I sit down and start reading this book in the Shaw University bookstore. That book was Dolores Williams' Sisters in the Wilderness. And I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my God, I'm a womanist. I did not know that was a thing. I did not know that was a word, but I'm reading this book as an undergrad and I'm just like, oh my goodness, it makes sense. Forced surrogacy, just having to birth for other people and having to be a particular type of Black woman. But then Dolores Williams says, well, Hagar is an example of what it means to actually go away after you've been through that forced surrogacy. And so I learned at Shaw that I was womanist at heart. And I was very disappointed that I did not ever hear that in church. And so that moment was the moment of, oh, this is also an academic term that talks about what I could be as a theologian, but for me as a biblical scholar. And so the, the, the time of my extended family actively wishing for my demise to the, I go to Shaw and then I go to Duke and I get a full scholarship and then I get accepted into PhD programs on the first round for some people that's unheard of. And all these things happening where God's prospering me and it's throwing everything that my family, my extended family thought should not happen. I remember getting the full scholarship to Duke and I was going to pick up my children with extended in-law family. And I got word that I got a full scholarship as I was going to pick up children. And I walked into the room all excited saying, I got a full scholarship to Duke. Now I'm picking up my children from my in-laws. And I said that, you can hear a pin drop. There was no response whatsoever. And I realized, oh, I forgot. You all are wish wishing for me to fail. Okay, come on kids, let's go home. So it's all of that that kind of gets me to this point right now. <laughs> well, thank you for, a lot. <laughs> no, it was, no, but it's, it's so good. I, I just, I love it because you captured just so well, like the heart of what we're trying to do, like the, the people's stories, I feel like are so um, important because it's, 
that's a place of deep connection because then it's not just like here let me share these cool ideas but rather let me show you my humanity and then like rob bell um who has someone who's been impactful in my life has has said like you know there's this invitation in life to go deep enough into our story that we find you know others can find themselves there as well yes and so just like being willing to like just come and talk to two random dudes who you have no idea who the hell we are <laughs> and just like share with us and the rest of the world like that's awesome it's like yes please uh the world needs the world needs more of that i i i love it um but the idea womanism is very confessional it's a confessional stance that I share what I feel I want to share. Now, of course, you don't get every aspect of my life, but I share what's important for you to understand why I am womanist and why I do what I do. And I think that's the important aspect of, and that that's what makes womanist biblical thought and then womanist theology different because we come from this confessional activist, biblical churchy stance. It's all those things combined that people just would not do in normal academia. And that's why I think womanism is so important. And it's, I I just feel to juxtapose that with so much, I feel like, you know, as, as someone who's been through uh, seminary and I've recovered from, you know, I actually went to reform theological seminary. Originally I was a a PCA pastor, which was, I was a five point Calvinist, if you can believe that at one point. And, uh, it was, you know, part of this journey. But of course, that was so the systemic theology that was so rooted in Aristotelian uh, logic that was kind of this disembodied conceptual, you know, the the, the ideal, uh, you know, searching for that conceptual piece versus womanist theology, which is born from the ground up, from story, from struggle, from the uh, from the out, from the inside out versus the outside in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think that's just one variable that is just inherent, like what you're describing. You can't separate story. Like I feel like um, with many with syst- systematic theology, you can separate story. You can it's disembodied concepts. It just can be theological brain candy. But with mm-hmm. womanist theology, it's impossible. To, it, it is born. It is it is interwoven and in- inseparable. So anyway, just that just really touched me as as you described that. Okay, so now just in terms of your story, let's continue with the, the evolution of your journey. You gra- you graduate from Duke, and you said you went to the Seattle School of. Uh, Theology, theology and psychology. And psychology, yes. That, which is was that Dan? Was Dan that Dan Allender? Okay. Yes. So I, I did a couple. I, I did many, many years ago. I did this. It was called Leadership Crucible, where uh, I went out there for a week, and they pretty much like throw you in the fire to burn your shit to ashes yes. uh, and fry you completely and, and break you down, and then slowly uh, build you up uh, before they send you home. Uh, and so. Uh, it's an intense, but I, but that is, there's, is a, I would say it's still a root structure, at least at that time, this was probably in the uh, 2005, 2006. Yes. At that point, that was still rooted in some pretty staunch evangelical theology Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. at that time. It was, it, and Dan was too, was evolving. Um, but so, so you went there, was that for your, 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 your PhD or was that your no, graduate that work? that was my first job after my PhD. So I graduate from Duke and then I get my PhD from Chicago Theological Seminary. And so I go from Chicago to the Seattle School. And so the Seattle School was my first appointment as a biblical scholar. So I'm assistant professor of biblical studies there and I'm teaching 
Masters of Arts in Counseling Psychology students and then MDiv students and also Masters of Arts in Theology and Culture. And so I get to Seattle and it's a wonderful experience because, you know, Seattle, the Seattle school is so rooted in story and in story work. And it was fascinating to be in an environment where they're like, yes, story plus biblical interpretation. So I think about the Seattle school as a stepping stone for even what I'm beginning to do right now at, you know, with If God Still Breathes, because it was the element of story there that helped me think about how my own story connects with how I do womanist biblical interpretation and then how I teach it. And the good thing about doing all of that in Seattle was you had a lot of post-evangelical students or students who are are deconstructing their evangelical upbringing. And you also had this idea of progressive evangelicalism as well in the air. So it was a ripe environment for me to kind of put together, put the Bible back together for students because they had come to the Seattle school saying, I never want to read the Bible again. I've only been taught one particular story about the Bible. And so when I come in and that was an experience because usually I could teach a class of 50 students and I'm the person of color. I'm the black person in the room where you still had Asians, but you did not have a lot of black folks. So that was an interesting experience. But the they knew then that my way of reading, teaching and talking about Bible would be different. And they expected it because I was a black woman. And so it really allowed me to be able to say, okay, the ways that you've been taught Bible in the past by all the older white guys who've been teaching you Bible, that's not what you're getting from me. So there was a lot of reclamation of the Bible, which was beautiful to watch. Yeah, that I mean, that is beautiful. And I, I, just, I remember um, for myself, the first time like I vividly <laughs> remember standing in front of my bookshelf one day and being like, wait a minute, all of these books are written by like white cisgender educated males. Mm-hmm. Something is missing here. Yep. And like, that was like, a, that was a big deal for me. Right. Um, and so like you, you know, that, and that leads me to things like liberation theology and queer theology and, you know, et, et cetera. Um, and, and the recognition that, as, you know, Jared Bias likes to say on uh, mm-hmm. Bible for Normal People, which you hung out on, which is yeah. how I found you, um, how Jared talks about, like, all theology it has an adjective in front of it, or at least mm-hmm. it should, um, if we're honest. Because, like, if you look at a course catalog at your average seminary, it'll be, like, theology one, two, three, systematic theology, whatever. And then your electives are, like, Black theology or womanist right. theology mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, bro, like, can we just be honest and be, like, all that other stuff? That's white theology, white theology. <laughs> like, right? Real centric, yeah, da da da, whatever. Um, and, and so that leads, to, you know, to your book, um, which, by the way, today, so I'm a, I'm a brewer now. I used to be a pastor. I, I brew beer. You brew um, beer. And there's uh, two Jesuits that come and hang out at the brewery that I work at all the time. Lovely. And they were in today, and I told them, I was like, guys, I have to go. I'm, I'm about to go do this uh, podcast interview. But I told the one guy, Ryan, uh, he teaches liberation theology at, at the school that he teaches at. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a Hispanic Italian American. Um, wow. And, yeah. And I showed him 
I was just like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm about to go do. Handed him my phone with the, the cover of your book on it. And he was like, holy fuck, that is awesome. Like that, he was blown, like he could not get over the name alone. Of your I book. appreciate that. Yeah, he was, he was super thrilled. And so, um, yeah, so just how, how does this book come to be, right? Because I, so I, I'll be honest, I listened to your book. Um, I have ADHD, so I, I didn't uh, physically sit down and, and read it, but I, I listened yeah. to it. And, you know, you tell all these like, you know, stories about uh, you went to SBL. And as soon as you said SBL, I started laughing because I've been to SBL. <laughs> and I was yes. like, I know exactly <laughs> where she is going with this. It's like, how does this, how does this come about? Like the, I don't know. I'm so two, yes. two, two, <laughs> two quick little things before we get into that story. First of yeah. all, just, I realized we wrote, we rolled in so hot into this interview that we actually forgot to name your book so if the the, the name of of dr angela parker's book is if if god still breathes why can't i black lives matter and biblical authority so just naming that book and so uh we and we want to plug that out of the gate and then secondly uh for those of us that are not in the know what is sbl as you begin to get into this story mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Society of Biblical Literature is the academic guild of biblical scholars on the globe. Now, the Society of Biblical Literature, I want to say, has about 6,000, 7,000 members. And the makeup, the demographic makeup of the SBL is still about 74% male, 26% female. And minoritized groups altogether, which would include African-American, uh, Latino, Latina, um, Native American, Asian is still only about, I want to say 12%. So it's still an 88% white organization. So you go to the national meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, and I could go into a banquet room full of people and could sometimes be the only Black person in the room, depending upon what banquet I'm going into. So it is a space that is still white and male dominated. So by virtue of me as a New Testament, an African-American New Testament woman scholar, I am one of 17 New Testament Black women scholars in the SBL. So, of course, we all know each other and we all support one another. But that means that most of the rooms that I go into are white rooms. And people can say a lot of crazy things <laughs> to me in these rooms where I have to either have a really great sense of humor or I would just always be in a corner crying somewhere. And I'm not that big on crying in a corner. So I have to have a great sense of humor and also have to have, you know, witty comebacks after a while. So this wasn't an SBL meeting, but one thing I name in the book is being in a gathering such like an SBL and someone saying to me, a white gentleman coming up to me and saying, oh, you're Angela Parker. You took my job. I'm just like, now this was when I was at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And I said, oh, I took your job. Well, tell me what you teach. And he begins to talk about 
I'm a straight redaction critic. So I teach historical criticisms and, but my main work is in redaction criticism. And so I'm straight historical critic. And I said, oh, sir, I did not take your job. I teach womanist, feminist, queer hermeneutics of the Bible. I teach post-colonial theory in the New Testament. I teach, you know, context of the New Testament. I dabble in redaction criticism, but that's not the only thing that I do. And that school did not just need a strict redaction critic. They needed womanist, feminist hermeneutics of the Bible unto preaching so that their students can actually get a better education. So, sir, I did not take your job. That's what I could get. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) That's, you know, I love that too, because that's not just, you know, you were just keeping a sense of humor. I mean, you were, you were bringing reality uh, into the situation. Wow. Okay. So, so one of the things you talk about in your book was when you were in uh, seminary, Mm -hmm. uh, you were, you were recognized and, and and you you were recognizing that so much of what you were being taught, similar to, you know, uh, I mean, Josh realized that every book he was reading were white cisgender male, you know, uh, theologians and perspectives, which of course is in, you know, one of the things we talk about, the most critical variable I think of all of like, I mean, I, I always say at second breath, we always say everything is paradigm and uh, that, that we have a lens on life and our paradigms are effectively invisible until there's new data that begins to come in and bump against them. And we begin to realize, oh my gosh, this is not reality. This is my perspective on reality with all of these unexamined presuppositions. And so, so much of your work that you're describing is uh, what you did, what, what you had in your conversation with that man was he had this lens on life of you took my job. And what you did was you and this is what Jesus did constantly uh, in the New Testament was he would meet someone, assess their existing worldview, recognize its limitations, and then pretty much uh, put a stick in the spokes of their standard operating procedure until they flew over the handlebars. But this was like to the rich young ruler, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Or to the Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. All of those were designed to explode their existing worldview and invite them to ex- experience something so much richer and deeper. Mm-hmm. That's what you did. That, that's what you yeah. did to that professor. Uh, you 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 recognized his existing worldview and you exploded it uh, with 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 reality to expand. And now I'm sure like everybody, we talk about this on the podcast, no one walked away from Jesus thinking it was a pleasant conversation, right? <laughs> no, no, that, that, that they either wanted to, you know, were full of joy or sorrow. They wanted to, to kill him or worship him, right? There, mm-hmm. there was no in between. And so, so I'm sure he walked away radically disrupted, but you also invited him to a deeper sense of reality. So right. when you were in seminary, what was your process of discovering that the, the, the most of what you were being taught was through a particular lens yeah. and, and that you began to question because you're already, because of your story, because of your recognition of your, your, your womanist theology, because of your recognition of already approaching theology with a, a fresh lens, a new lens, an inside out lens by the very nature of your story, let alone your academic training. What was that process like in recognizing that? And then where did you go from there? Yeah, that's a great question. I was actually talking to a student yesterday, a female student, about how she really shows up in classes and interrogates some of the the white male thinking that even that still exists even in classes that I teach. So I'm teaching a class and the dynamics are varied. 
And there are still, there are men in my class who are very complementarian. And so they're studying text with me, knowing that I am not complementarian. So I have to give them credit for at least taking the class and rolling with us. But I have women in the class who are really pushing back against some of their thinking. And I said to this, this female student, I wish I had more of your gumption when I was in my own seminary classes. Now, the difference was when I was in seminary, I had classes where I was the only woman and the only person of color in the room. So I had classes that were upper level Bible classes that were just me and a bunch of some now my really good white guy friends who pastor churches in, you know, Methodist churches in North Carolina, actually. But during that time, it was difficult. So I'm already, I'm already a little bit discombobulated because I'm in a space where it's it's a stark difference. But I remember the first day of one class, I walked into the room. It's the first day of class. It was Greek exegesis of First Corinthians. And someone asked me if I was in the right classroom. One of the other students. And I'm taking out my Greek New Testament, taking out my concordance, you know, like, yeah, I'm in the right classroom. I said, this is Greek exegesis of First Corinthians, isn't it? They're like, yeah. I'm like, I'm in the right classroom. I know Greek. But <laughs> during that first day, I had to do double duty in reading. So we had to, we went around the room. The professor has us read and translate. We're reading and translating First Corinthians chapter one. And I had to do not one, not two, but three verses just so my professor could see that I actually do know Greek because that was the other aspect of my time at Duke. My professors would say, y'all don't do well in languages. And I'd say, who's y'all? And they'd say, you know, you know black people. Y'all don't do well with language. At Duke? At Duke? Yes, at Duke. <laughs> yes. That was said to me. That was said to me. And so I'm just, and but see, I'm a stubborn person. So because I'm such a stubborn person, my mindset is like, well, I'll prove you wrong to hell with you. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know who you're dealing with. Like all the neck rolling, all the neck rollings coming out. <laughs> and so it also became just, I have to prove them wrong. So that was one aspect of it. But then even in the classroom, I would ask questions that were for me related to my Black Baptist tradition that brought me up in Christ. So I'm asking about, I remember asking in the first Corinthians class, well, you know, we're talking about feeding people and we're talking about what it means to have a meal with one another as we're reading first Corinthians eight through 10. And I said, well, what does it look like that, you know, I, I hear you guys, and this was, you know, 19 guys who were talking about wanting to be a pastor and going out and feeding the hungry in their neighborhoods. And I said, well, what are you gaining from them? And the response was nothing. I'm there to give them something. I'm not gaining anything from them. And I said, well, where's the reciprocity and mutuality in the, in the food and fellowship? That doesn't seem right. And so I really had those moments, those stark moments in conversation with my classmates about they see themselves as completely paternalistic. 
and they're going out to do something for those poor people. And I'm more in line with the poor people. So oftentimes they feel like they're doing something paternalistic towards me by allowing me to be in the room. And, you know, just even by the readings that we're, that we're engaging, I'm like, oh, this is, this is that scholarship for me. And I had to, I really had to read. Please continue. Yeah. I had to rework that. It was actually after I got out of Duke and went to Chicago that it really, I had to really rework it. Now I'm skipping something. I'm skipping the fact that I went from Duke and I started at Union Theological Seminary. I started my PhD at Union Theological Seminary. My goal when I was at Union was to combine womanist biblical, was to become and learn womanist biblical interpretation by having my white feminist advisor, who I won't name, and my secondary advisor as James Cone. That was my goal when I got to Duke. After two years of being at Duke, it became apparent that the white feminist would not allow me to be a womanist biblical interpreter. She wanted to be, she wanted me to be a white feminist biblical interpreter. And Dr. Cohn says to me, ever since you got in here, I knew she wasn't going to let you do womanist biblical interpretation. So this is what we're going to do. You're going to transfer to Chicago Theological Seminary. And there you'll be able to become a womanist biblical interpreter because the your advisor that you have right now, she's not going to allow it. You'll never graduate. You'll she'll make sure you go off into oblivion instead of graduating. So there's a whole other story there uh, that actually needs to be written in another book. But I was really focusing on the Duke context right in this book. (laughs) So it was really my conversations with Dr. James Cone and then getting to CTS where my womanist interpretation really developed. That, that I I think naming that, and, and, you know, I'm not, Josh and I are not exactly sure of defining our particular listener demographic in its expansiveness. We we know mm-hmm. that it tends to be people that are definitely post-evangelical, deconstructionist, yes. reconstructionist, trying to figure uh, life out. Um, but I do think just just naming, I, th- I think w- with those 19 other white men in that room talking about feeding the poor and inherently within that system is us versus them right the other right. Mm-hmm. uh versus the versus we it's it's a it's a uh us them and this paternalistic uh which i think that paternalism in, is inherently uh there's white supremacy inherent in that in in that perspective and and one thing, and and my circles as an Episcopal priest, you know, we tend to be this the very progressive, uh, woke uh, denomination. But within that, I find that so often the 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 toxic side of that wokeness is that there is a a, a quickness to pre- to present more than authentically transform. Uh, more than actually heal systems that you're you're trying to say how do we message this right how do i make sure i don't fuck up and say the wrong nope. thing mm-hmm. how, how do i you know not you know I, I i don't want to be paternalistic i don't want to be hierarchical i don't want to be uh racist so how do i say the right thing which is so I- inherently harmful it's just continuing the same system yeah uh 
uh, versus uh, an approach of recognizing um, what your invitation was that this is not paternalistic in nature. In fact, right now it's second breath. And, and, and Josh and I talk about this with Rethinking Faith. We're doing a lot of anti-oppression work within our organization. Uh, we've talked about this in some of our different interviews. Just recently we had um, uh, Alma uh, uh, Petty on, and she wrote a book called Chingona uh, about being a, a woman of color growing up, which was really powerful. And uh, we, we, we talked about this, this, this reality of recognizing um, that white supremacy that this is not this is not something that we need to work on to then as a gift to those of color oh my god that's the continuing this paternalistic bullshit that white supremacy is toxic and harmful and evil and uh, at the and and in reality the healing first comes from us healing and I say this as a white man yeah. that it, I've I've been raised in a fish tank of white supremacy. And what does it mean for me to grow in, in healing of this toxic system that's preventing me from experiencing the expanse of divine love and possibility, let alone me perpetuating a system that actually prohibits and hinders the love of God to flow in the world, which is all that we want to be about. So, right. you know, it's, it, it, it is this, so just recognizing for any of our, uh, uh, white listeners that are and and, and what you, one of the things I loved, Doctor Parker, as you were wading into this, is you're fearlessly you're sitting here with two white dudes and you're and, and you're fearlessly just articulating this uh, about white culture because and 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 just to name that it, it is not it, the reason I think you do that with such uh, authenticity is because it's reality and you know it's reality and you're inviting us to reality and our listeners to reality. And because this, this articulation, as we get to in your book shortly, as we continue to unpack it, this is the way of love. What you're articulating is the way of love. It is the way of healing. It's the way of transformation. Uh, and this is not about power dynamics. I mean, we have to name the power dynamics, but it is not about who gets what and scarcity dynamics and all of that. This mm -hmm. is recognizing what systems have been uh, prohibiting and hampering the love of God flowing. And we have to name that within our system and within our Western theology, that it is inundated uh, with uh, white supremacy and, 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 and with people, again, theologians that with no intention of it, maybe no even awareness of fostering a system that continues uh, to prohibit the flow of love, uh, that this, this is our fish tank. Yeah, um, and is. so, so, so we're invited. So, so, and I know and what I just said is 101. I just know it's 101, but just, just naming that for any of our listeners that might not already kind of be, uh, breathing in the, f the, the fresh air of what you've been living into for many years. Um, okay. So with but that I said, can I add yeah, something? Please. Please. The, the part one part of the book for me is how we talk about exercising the demon, the demons of white supremacist thought. And that also was within me in my time at Duke, because I was at first trying so hard to read like a white male biblical scholar, to write like a white male biblical scholar. And so I had to kind of check myself and say, wait a minute, what am I doing? And if they don't even want, because up until graduation, 
I got the the comments. Your papers are too subjective. You're you're just you're still thinking through a black woman lens, and I'm like, damn it, that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so it it took a it really took me up until graduation to say, no, this is what I'm doing, and you'll be okay with it. Peace out. You know, I've graduated, so leave me alone. So that that has to be ex it had to be exercised out of me as well, that wanting to be close to whiteness and wanting to be like whiteness. Yeah. Yeah, no, man, that, that's so good. And I'm going to say something that maybe is uh, potentially pissing people off, but I've, I've realized within my own theological deconstruction, so to speak, that what I was doing was deconstructing white theology. And then yeah. I was reading other white people telling me how to fucking do that shit. And then all of a sudden I come to this place where I'm, I'm instantly attracted to things like womanist theology without even knowing that's what it is or liberation mm -hmm. theology, because now it's like the system that I came from, why the fuck would I listen to them? Tell me how to break it down and then rebuild that shit. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. forgive me for being so animated, but like, this is so, so important to me. And like, genuinely, I believe like wholeheartedly, at least for myself, that until I started reading people that didn't look like me yeah. and hearing their stories and their experience, that my plights with Christianity were just, even though they were real, they were still so fucking small. Yeah. And like, right. it, it kind of just like blew the, the roof off for me. And um, I mean, I think I'm trying to remember who said this to me. Uh, it was on an, an episode of this show, but they said that they believe that the most important work being done in biblical scholarship and theology today is by black women. And I oh, was wow. like, fuck, yeah, I, I'm 100 percent on board with that. Like, and I'm not trying to kiss your ass because that's no, not my personality, that. but like it's just and I'm I've had a few beers, so forgive me. But like I am I still so have heated. one shot of vodka. <laughs> well, crush it because <laughs> I'm getting heated because this just like, oh, I wish. I had these things before and like, it can't, I don't know. No, uh, I, I forgive I, me. No, for being I, that guy, that. <laughs> I think the thing that I really like is I do think that the, the groundbreaking work in Bible and theology is coming from black women, but I also want to highlight that it's not just for our liberation. It's for the liberation of our good white male colleagues as well. That's the oh, thing, man. because I think, a lot of my good white male colleagues don't think that they need liberation. And I'm like, oh, honey, yes, you do. <laughs> that's the, that's, that, that, that's it. it. That I, I think that that's the message that has to break through. And again, this goes back to this notion of, you know, it's almost it's almost the, the with within the white culture and, and, and white Christian culture, as if we're having to uh, let go of something uh as, as let go of white privilege um and 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 reality is we we are we, we are letting go of a toxic system that is innately harmful that we need to be liberated from and that we need to open up to experience love the 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 infinite love of the divine uh, on an expansive level that this is this this is an invitation to freedom to beauty to love and uh and and and, and that nails it okay so with 
with that said, so I know I, I do want to dial in on, on your book because it sure. just ties in beautifully, especially this concept of inerrancy. And I would say that the majority of our listeners are probably already not fans of inerrancy. I mean, on a pragmatic <laughs> level, I, I just even even on a pragmatic level, it's just horseshit, right? Because even yeah. if we say uh, the Bible is inerrant, well, then we have uh, over 40,000 denominations, yeah. uh, each claiming their unique interpretation of the inerrant Bible. So pragmatically speaking, it's meaningless. So I would say that, you know, most of our listeners probably are, are, are post-inerrancy. Um, but, but what I love about the way you approach it is, again, uh, it's to unpack the existing presuppositions that again, everything's paradigm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you unpack for us your journey of you grew up in a context, which probably, you know, again, lauded scripture. If you did not have a, an inerrant perspective, well, shoot, you grew up in a perspective where uh, if you disobeyed the perfect will, then you were doomed to a life of uh, curse. Right. Uh, and all of a sudden your, your full Duke scholarship exploded that whole paradigm. Um, and, but, but what was your journey of kind of exploring this concept of inerrancy and then beginning to dig into some of the presuppositions? Because I think there, again, this is an invitation beyond just uh, intellectual brain candy. Right. Uh, and, uh, but this is a whole new lens on scripture and that invites us to love. I think what I was seeing was the power dynamics behind inerrancy and infallibility. So inerrant simply means that the Bible is free from error and infallibility means that the Bible is going to do, or you can trust the Bible to do what it's going to do regarding salvation. So, but what I found as I was thinking about inerrancy and infallibility, it seemed to me that the actual inerrancy and infallibility became placed upon the preachers who were preaching the biblical text. And so it was the the white male head of, of churches that also became inerrant and infallible, and you could not question them. And so their readings and interpretations became the ways that everybody is supposed to read biblical text. And that's how I see inerrancy and infallibility as a tool of white supremacy. And it was funny because I hadn't really thought about it until I blurted it out at a conference. I was at a conference and I was I was reading the Gospel of Mark, but I made the statement that inerrancy and infallibility are tools of white supremacy. And at the, the conference, their, their Twitter feed was blowing up like, what is she talking about? And so and I was like, oh, I have to unpack this a little bit more. And so when I was thinking about, you know, how. Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Protestants, the Protestant Reformation, and then breaking away from Catholicism. In Catholicism, the inerrancy and infallibility went to the Pope, but in the Protestant Reformation, inerrancy and infallibility of the texts were only on the Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic texts. And so I don't know how we got to this cultural ideal that the Bible is inerrant and infallible and the person who's preaching it also becomes inerrant and infallible and talks to you about how you're supposed to live your life. It seemed very top down to me. And so what I was trying to argue, what I am trying to argue in the book is that if we really take our Bible seriously, if we really actually love the damn thing, if you love the thing, then you're going to wrestle with it and you're going to talk to it and you're going to converse with it. You're not going to let someone over you tell you this is how you're supposed to read it and understand it. You're actually going to love it. And I, I talk about how I love my spouse, but 
he's not an errant and infallible in my life. I have conversations with him about, you know, just things that are going on in the world. And sometimes I take his advice and sometimes I don't because that it's that same ideal that the man is supposed to be the head of the woman. And so everything she says, thinks, or does has to go through him. Well, that just doesn't make any sense. And it did not make any sense to me for the biblical text to serve in that way but it still serves as an authority in my life without that top-down authoritarian approach that comes from inerrancy and infallibility. I wrestle with Paul all the time. And it was funny, the first person who said to me, <laughs> you don't seem like you like Paul or <laughs> said to me some, something like this, you, you're gonna have to answer to Paul when you get to heaven. And I said, well, dag, it sounds like you want me to go and answer to Paul right now, thanks a lot. But the first person who said that to me was Dan Allender at the Seattle school. No, yes. no way. Oh, my. what did you like, say? You what did want you me say? To, sounds like you're trying to put me in conversation with Paul right now, Dan. I don't think I have. Where is he at? Bring him, bring him here. Right there. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, maybe when I get to heaven, Paul has some answering to do to me. Yes, that's right. of his his use of women's bodies and i think and i argue that paul uses women's bodies and co-ops women's experiences without actually being a woman or an enslaved person he does the same thing with enslaved people so he's co-opting other people's experiences in order to talk about jesus and i often when i go to different seminaries and lecture on any of my pauline work people get mad I mean, and it's usually it's usually an old white guy in the back of the room who says, well, what would you want Paul to say? What would you want Paul to do? And I would say, just don't use women's bodies. And I would say the same thing to pastors and preachers today. Don't willy nilly use and co-opt women's experiences or oppress people's experiences. They're not your experiences. We can do better. I think I think that's so profound. And, and, and one thing I think, and again, I, I don't think our audience is largely evangelical, although I do think they're in the process of deconstructing. So just let me name that yeah. in terms of the concept of inerrancy, the concept was not even defined officially until the seven, 1970s uh, in Chicago, yeah. when the yeah. Chicago Statement yeah. of Inerrancy was, mm -hmm. was crafted. I mean, it is fucking nascent. I mean, yeah. this is a brand new idea. This is yeah. not this is not orthodoxy. Exactly. This is a brand new idea mm -hmm. that evolved. And it was actually a reaction uh, to, to so much uh, of kind of evolving uh, textual criticism from the earliest 20th century. So th th this is not solid orthodoxy. Right. And that being said, too, when we begin to unpack our approach to scripture, and in many contexts, it's saying, well, this is what the Bible says, and which is just wrought, just, just wrought with uh, danger and toxicity. Mm -hmm. Just recently, I had the privilege this last week of um, working with a local rabbi, and we were unpacking some Hebrew scriptures and, uh, and talking about mindfulness. And he said, within the uh, the Jewish tradition, there are th there are some some traditions that approach the Bible with three particular lenses, but often it's through five particular lenses. And you're in in there's never a text that you approach just what's the literal interpretation. That's that's one of the lenses, right? One of the lenses. Yeah. But then you're going through the historical, then you're going through the mystical, then you're going through mm -hmm. the, like in, inherent within the, the rabbinical tradition mm -hmm. is all of these different lenses and you yeah. get to just sit in the mishmash and exploration yeah. and saying, what's the story and what's the dance and what does this mean for me and what does this mean for us historically and what does this mean for this particular moment? Mm -hmm. And all of it is a gorgeous exploration 
uh, of of the divine in the now and in the broader context. Yes. And I think that I really do think inerrancy is one of the, it, it's a profoundly dangerous uh, and I'm just naming it. It's it's yeah. dangerous. It's harmful. Mm-hmm. I think it's done more harm uh, for Christians uh, than, than than many other uh, theological perspectives. Uh, it was reactive, um, and and again, it's 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 who are the primary people that once just today I'm not okay fine I was watching TikTok I, I watch TikTok videos <laughs> and and, wow, and today Greg, I was watching you're like TikTok. you're like oh do you watch TikTok bro I, hey first of all my, first of all my my my, my 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 MySpace page is awesome so shut up Josh and uh <laughs> so, okay so I was I was watching TikTok and there was this woman it was this LGBTQ meeting and and I identify within the LGBT community, and so I was curious about this 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 meeting. And right. this woman gets up, and she and she says, uh, she's she, as a mouth. She says, "I speak for God Almighty," and that was. And then she started to condemn the LGBT community. And I thought, oh there, there there inherently is there there is the rub right there. There's the issue. So we arrive at that point. Now, granted, this this existed you know within Christianity before inerrancy, but I do think there's the rub that once you believe that you've got the right interpretation, then, then you approach it without, with unexamined presuppositions Mm -hmm. rife within our cultural context and and fish tanks of, of white supremacy Mm -hmm. and, and oppression, uh, 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 oppression based theological perspectives and philosophical perspectives and they're unexamined. So until we begin to say, pause, uh, how do we approach the Bible? And actually, I love the Bible. I, I think it is the most gorgeous uh, evolution of theological perspective and yeah. and diversity the of theological and diversity, right? And the, myth, Bible and the mythology. Mm-hmm. It's diverse. Yeah. It is so diverse. And again, like as you say in your book, here are white theologians with unexamined presuppositions from an inerrancy perspective that are attempting to teach the perspective of an oppressed minority, uh, uh, how is that going to work out? They make Jesus like middle-class Jesus. And now we're seeing, of course, Republican Jesus. Oh God, should I say that? But we're seeing that. Yeah, we can, we, we can be honest. We can say, good God, let's call that shit. It's toxic and bad. Please continue. continue. And and so I talk about in, in the book, how it's all a strategy of control. Because I'm glad you brought up that Chicago statement, because during that, they were starting to kick out even still their own white conservative friends who were doing redaction criticism and saying, well, this is what Luke is doing and this is what Matthew is doing. And it's not all coming from heavens from God that they're working within their context. And sometimes those guys were having a hard time even engaging with those ideas. And so they kicked out Robert Gundry. And I talk about him around, you know, page 34, 35, because it's all a strategy of control. And if you get out of control, they're going to kick you out or, you know, kind of like excommunicate you or say that you can't be a part of the club anymore. Well, truth be told, I don't want to be a part of that club. You're going to kick me out. I don't need to be a part of it anyway. And so that's that's where the the white supremacy comes in and the authoritarian stance of if you don't believe it exactly the way we say you should understand the Bible, then you're out. That makes no sense. Mm. It just makes no sense. Yeah. And so which has been the, the yeah. inherent toxicity of the system, which I'm not going to go back to, you know, OK, Constantine, <laughs> which I think was the beginning of 
codifying who's in and who's out. And we've been repeating this toxic mistake ever since. But I think now in this moment of recognizing uh, what, what the invitation, what I think your book is inviting us to, uh, what I experienced in it. And again, when you tell your story, story transcends, right? Story, story invites us all into the, the, the human experience. And, and, and what I feel from your story is an invitation to experience freedom from oppression, freedom from these toxic systems that are prohibiting our experience of divine love. That if you don't want me about, to be a part of your club, great, because <laughs> you're a part of the kingdom of God. You know, right. the, 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 the kingdom of God, which transcends any uh, club or any institutional religion. Um, and, and I know we're, we're, we're wrapping up on time and, and I'm sure Josh has a thousand comments too, but I always love to ask if, if you could, if you could distill, first of all, let me just say, thank you, uh, Dr. Parker. You, I, I, my heart literally, I, I'm, you know, as a second breath, I'm all about the embodied spirituality and, yes. and I really pay attention to the sensations in my body. I believe a sensation in my body is equal in wisdom to a thought in my head. Mm -hmm. And yeah. my heart literally after talking to you feels warm and full and my body feels, Aww. uh, light. And, and, and I just want to say, and I'm getting a little choked up. That's is what it is. My brain will catch up to what's happening in my body a little I bit later. That. Um, so and, and, and it's authentic because I think, because what I think you're describing is, is, is the reality of, of, of the divine. I think what you're inviting us to is something beautiful and free and, and what life is about. And so, so uh, when you, if you could distill down for our listeners, for our millions and millions and millions of listeners across the world, uh, if you could distill down <laughs> what, what maybe not millions and millions around the world, but our tens to twelves to fifteens of listeners. Yeah, our one listener, <laughs> our one listener, our my 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 uh, Josh's wife who listens. Um, <laughs> my uh, wife does not listen. What's that? Trip oh, shit. Trip we have listens. zero listeners. Okay, this is just trip a three listens. trip listen. This, this is for you trip. guys. <laughs> this is just for trip. So okay, our one listener. If you could just distill down into the heart of what what you would love to share, if you you, you know. The, the one kind of articulation of why folks should read your book and why, why you wrote this book, Born of Your Story. What, what's the invitation? The invitation is to stop holding your breath. And the invitation to stop holding your breath means that you actually engage the biblical text with an expectancy that God's breath combined with your breath reveals something in you that then disseminates to the people around you as well so that we become a true body of Christ that are breathing together with God's creative breath. Because in Genesis, God breathed into Ha-Adam. And so I really believe that God's Holy Spirit constantly still wants to breathe into us and we are living in stifled breath all the time where people are microaggressing against us or gaslighting us to say, no, you can't do this, that, or the other. So the invitation is to actually not listen to and take in the stale breath of other people, but to take in God's creative breath. That's the invitation. 
Josh, I'm sorry, I've got to say one thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, Josh, I got so excited. I have to say one more thing. I was going to say, Greg's about to fall no. out of his chair. I, 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 I just, if, okay, for, for our Patreon listeners that are watching the video of this, they just saw me freak out and my hands fl- f- flapping around. So our Patreon listeners get to see the video. Uh, but, but let me, okay, so with second breath, you know, we talk about, that was named after the first breath is reactivity, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we, when something happens, someone cuts us off, we get a call from someone we don't want to, we hear something in the news uh, or some, there's something offensive. Our first breath is our reaction, right? right? But we talk about our second breath is an invitation to actually ground and instead of react, respond. Our mm-hmm. second breath is a portal uh, to actually respond from our true self. But what you're describing, I think, is is, is a deeper nuance of, uh, of of ruach right of the yes. hebrew word for yes. for breath then it, it's it's an invitation to the not only the individual experience of breath and breathing but the communal uh, of what it means to take a deep breath uh communally societally globally yes. um and i just want to say you just you'd added not not I've, I've thought about this concepts before but not as coherently as you just articulated them. So Josh, I apologize. I know that, so Josh and I have this uh, nonverbal flow with our interviews and kind of go back and forth and we, uh, and it was his turn and I totally interrupted him because I was so excited. So with that said, uh, thank you for that, adding a nuance that uh, as executive director of Second Breath, I'm gonna be flowing that into uh, our curriculum and our perspective of what breath means. So thank you, Dr. Parker. All right, Josh. Josh, it's all yours, man. I'm sorry. I just got too excited. This is too off. No, I like when Greg gets excited. It's fun. <laughs> but yeah, I I echo Greg and his his gratitude. But also, I just, since you're here, I want to share with you like what your book did for me because mm. and it'll sound basic and rudimentary, so forgive me, but it was like a big deal for me. I kind of recognized that like, Basic and it's gonna sound silly. So you'd be like, "Well done, Josh. You're ridiculous." But like, I kind of got to this point. I was like, "Holy shit!" So the Bible is written by uh, an an oppressed people group sharing their story and journey with the divine, and then these people come along and start to you know post enlightenment, try to talk about the Bible means this and that or some you know whatever. Mm-hmm. It's an error and all these kind of things. And then these very same people uh, then go on. And write uh, books and theological doctrines about why owning slaves is a really good idea. Right. And I was like, there's the, that, yes, that is, that is fucked up. Like, like, so for me, it was like, oh my goodness. Like it was the first time that it really clicked for me uh, genuinely. And I was like, holy crap. Like this, what? Like, yes. how did we get so far off this book that was written by an oppressed people group to where it is today, especially in America with all this like white Christian nationalism running around, you know, doing its thing. And it's like, maybe we should listen to the people who fucking wrote the book in the first place. That doesn't, that doesn't look like me. That doesn't look like Greg. And that's uncomfortable. Cause like, I like hearing myself talk. I have a podcast. That's like the most arrogant thing you can do is believe that people want to hear what the fuck you have to say on the internet. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, dude, I am tripping hard, (laughs) like propaganda. My, you know, props been on the show before and and he has a song called Precious Puritans. I just absolutely Mm -hmm. love it. He's just like, dude, how did the Holy Spirit not convict these people that like it's not cool to own? It's not cool. Right. You're talking about they're inerrant and they're at the same time talking about it's cool to own people. 
Like yeah. what? Yeah. What? And so like your those ideas were floating around in my head and I oh, kind yeah. of like felt them, but for whatever reason, how how I don't know if it's your writing style, how you talk about things, just maybe I connect with your story in some way, but it really kind of like light bulb. Yeah. And so I I get, like seriously, I I appreciate it very much. Um I love and I think too um I, like I told you earlier, I listened to your book. I didn't sit down and read it, which was a, is still a new experience for me. Cause I, I like, you know, highlighting yeah. and writing, mm-hmm. but there was a different, there was listening to it had in a personal relational kind of connection yeah. to it Yeah, where like, and I, and I promise this is, is real more than one time on my way to work, listening to your book brought me to a place like like emotionally where I was like weeping and I was like dude it's fucking 9 a.m like I gotta go do stuff today and this is tearing me apart but in a good way so thank you so so much thank you so Uh, much for letting me know that (laughs) yes I just wanted to share with you what what your book meant to me on a on a personal level rather than just like you know we can talk about other cool things that you said but the (laughs) this i don't know the story is really where i find myself nowadays is just this personal connection and um thank you thank you well the story is important to me as well so thank you all for having me on here and just just really having a delightful conversation about if god still breathes why can't i yes and it'll be in the show notes and we will tag you in it and we will promote it thank you (laughs) the whole world will read the book i i can't actually i can't promise that that was another (laughs) 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 was a a whisper of never rub forgive me dr parker dr parker thank you so much it's just been a gift thank you for your vulnerability and your presence it's been a gift it was a pleasure i appreciate you both (laughs) yeah we'll have to hang out again soon thank you so much yeah good deal take care and listeners as always uh go in peace and thanks for hanging out with us today